You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We love the promises of God, do we not? And we have to say that we love them because we know that if anybody has the power and the potential to keep his promises, it is our God. So if he has made to us a promise, we can be rest assured that he will fulfill his word to us because God is always faithful to his word and he always blesses his word and what God says we know will come to pass. And so we say with the hymn writer, We stand on the promises, stand on the promises of God our Savior, standing on the promises of God, because we know that His promises cannot fail. And so we love the promises of God, and there are some good promises. If God in His Word gave me no other promise but the promise of salvation, that would be sufficient for me. If the only revealed text of Scripture was, for instance, Those who believe in the Son have life. If that were the only inspired phrase in all of human history, that would be sufficient for me. That would be enough. To believe in the Son and to have life. But we have this multitude, this panoply of promises that God has given to us. Beautiful promises. Like John 11, 25 and 26, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 1 John 2.25, this is the promise which He Himself has made, eternal life. Then there is the promise of heaven. John 14.1 and 4, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Precious promise. He has gone away to prepare for us a place. He is coming again to receive His church unto Himself that we may be with Him for all of eternity. It's the promise of heaven. The promise of the Lord's coming again, the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. What a promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the promise of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul says, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. In other words, we will not all die. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment at the twinkling of an eye the last trumpet, the voice of God. And this mortal will put on immortality. This perishable will put on the imperishable. And when this mortal is put on immortality and this perishable is put on the imperishable, then shall come about the saying that is written, Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? And we shall always go to be with the Lord. And who can forget the promise in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5? I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. We can go to the bank on that one, can't we? Precious promises. Another precious promise. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh. Hey, you snuck that one in there on us, didn't you? 
We were talking about the wonders of salvation and the glories of heaven and the wonders of the resurrection and an imperishable body and eternity with the Lord and the comfort that that should bring us. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now we have to admit we love the promises of God, but we love some of the promises better than some of the other promises, don't we? This is one of those promises that you don't like to meditate on when you're trying to go to sleep at night. You you don't want to sit there and let this one turn over in your mind while you're trying to get yourself to fall asleep. The Apostle Paul knew this promise well. The Apostle Paul was a living demonstration of this promise. His life modeled 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. In fact, he said to Timothy, You know well my sufferings at Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. You know how much I suffered. But then the Apostle says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That was the promise that Christ had given to him, and Paul was well aware of it. Do you remember when Paul was converted, the Lord uh, spoke to Ananias and told him, go to the road called Straight, and there you'll find Saul of Tarsus and baptize him. And Ananias kind of had that little exchange with the Lord in Acts chapter 9. And the Lord said to him, he is my chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's not one the Apostle Paul probably spent a lot of time thinking about late at night. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We are seeing, my friends, that the book of Acts is not only the chronicle of the sovereign grace of God in saving sinners and directing the growth of His church, but the book of Acts is also for us a chronicling of the sufferings of the Apostle Paul for the Gospel, particularly chapters 13 through 28 as we see all that he endured and all that he suffered for Jesus' sake. The Apostle Paul serves for us to be an inspiration and an encouragement and an exhortation to see that there is grace for those who endure anything for the sake of the Gospel and are willing to give up all for Christ. And so Acts chapter 13 is a chronicle of Paul's suffering and it begins, it actually begins before Acts 13, but it focuses on Paul in Acts chapter 13 and goes all the way through to the end of the book of Acts, all the way through to Acts 28. We're done with Acts chapter 13 and you need to have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Now in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul has suffered, but we have to be honest, it's been mostly verbal attacks, has it not? The island of Cyprus with Elimus the magician, that Jewish false prophet who tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith, he began to blaspheme and say these things about Paul. That was a verbal attack, and Paul dealt with him rather swiftly and rather efficiently and struck him blind. Then at the end of Acts chapter 13, the Pisidian Antioch synagogue, they begin to blaspheme and say things about Paul. All of the attacks in chapter 13 are verbal. They're verbal attacks on Paul, probably his character, his gospel, his calling as an apostle, blasphemes against Christ and his church. But in Acts chapter 14, it gets turned up a couple notches. And it goes from being verbal attacks to being physical attacks. And indeed, the apostle Paul's life would be in danger in Acts chapter 14. Let's read the first seven verses together. They have left the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. You remember there were some there who had been appointed to eternal life and they believed. There were some there who had not been appointed to eternal life and they opposed. And by their own choice, they repudiate the gospel. And so the apostle Paul and Barnabas knock the dust off their feet and they move on and they move to the city of Iconium. Chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together 
and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. But when an attempt was made by both the Jews and the Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. You're going to see, my friends, this morning that the preaching of the gospel created opposition for those who believe, that's in verses 1 through 3, and also for those who preached, verses 4 through 7. So Luke is still chronicling for us this opposition to the gospel. And you and I might hope that as he dusted his feet off from the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and he went on to Iconium that he would be able to start fresh, have a different response, maybe a more positive response, and avoid all of the conflict about the gospel. But that could never happen because the Lord promised him, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And indeed, we find that this response of opposition to the gospel was not some anomaly related strictly to Pisidian Antioch and the city of Antioch. It was actually going to plague the Apostle Paul for his entire ministry. His entire life would be one of fighting opposition to the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. So let's look at, first of all, how the opposition, the gospel created opposition for those who believed. They left Pisidian Antioch and they went to the city of Iconium. On the back of your uh, insert, you should have a map there which shows you where Iconium is located in relation to Pisidian Antioch. It was about 90 miles east, southeast of the city of Pisidian Antioch. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they traveled to Iconium and you will see in the coming weeks how they eventually went to Lystra and to Derby, and then turned back around and came back through those same cities encouraging the saints. And their ministry trip, this whole first missionary journey, will be wrapped up by the end of chapter 14. So they moved from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium. And it seems that the farther out into the reaches that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas went, the more hostile was their reception. In Iconium, there is a synagogue there. There's no synagogue mentioned in Derby or in Lystra, and that's likely because there was a very small, if not insignificant, Jewish population and Jewish influence in those cities. And so Lystra and Derby, they kind of represent the extremities of where the gospel is going to go. William Ramsey, a historian, calls those cities backwater. This was Hickville. These people were not as sophisticated, they were not as civilized, they were more pagan than the people in the more metropolitan centers like Pisidian Antioch and Pamphylia and Iconium, even Iconium was civilized compared to these outreaches of Derby and Lystra. Now, who in the world would take the gospel to the fringe? Paul, that's who. He's taking the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. If that means taking it to the backwater if that means going up into the boonies, if that means going out to the fringe of civilization, that's where Paul and Barnabas would go. So that's where they go. They stop in Iconium. Now, a couple interesting things about Iconium that I just want you to know. First of all, the city of Iconium, the word Iconium has kind of an interesting meaning. There was a Greek myth that was circulated and actually created to give the city of Iconium a significance. According to the Greek myth, there was a devastating flood in the region that wiped out everything in the Iconium region. 
And so Prometheus and Athenia, according to the myth, recreated mankind in that area by taking mud and forming it into the image of men and then breathing into them life. Now you can kind of see the biblical, what the biblical truth that was corrupted even in that Greek myth. They took the dirt or the mud and according to the Greek myth, formed it into images of men and breathed into them life. The Greek word for image is icon, which translates right into our English language, thus the name Iconium. That's how it got its name. There was, that's where the images were made by the Greek gods. But second, Iconium kind of ties into something that I mentioned a couple months ago, back at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. Do you remember when I gave to you that physical description of the Apostle Paul? It was a rather unflattering physical description of the Apostle Paul. It was at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, which was already three months ago, so some of you maybe were not here. Some of you have never heard this. For some of you, maybe it's just not fresh in your mind. That physical description actually comes out of Iconium. What happened was there was a presbyter or a bishop in Asia Minor who wrote this book called the Acts of Paul. It was written in 185-195 A.D., about 130 years after the Apostle Paul died. And supposedly this bishop wrote the book in order to fill in all the missing details of Paul and his ministry. And he exaggerated some things, kind of really built Paul up. A lot of it's just fabricated myths and legends, most of which have no basis in reality at all. The largest section of that book deals with Paul's time in Iconium. The largest section of the Acts of Paul really focuses on Paul's stay in Iconium on this ministry. And that, because it's so large, is sometimes circulated by itself, and it's called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Now, Tertullian, an early church writer, tells us that this bishop, when it was found out that he had written this book, he was actually removed from his office because he had elaborated on so much and made stuff up, but he admitted that he did it out of a love for Paul. So the physical description that he gives of Paul is supposedly out of a love for Paul. How is it connected to Iconium? Well, it was a resident of Iconium's, according to the Acts of Paul and Thecla, it was a resident of Iconium who went out of the city of Iconium to meet Paul as he came to the city, and there he describes Paul with these words. He was a man, quote, of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting in the middle and a nose somewhat hooked. So, eyebrows that meet in the middle, a hooked nose, bow-legged, short, and bald. That's the description of the Apostle Paul. The only physical description we get out of Paul, given to us by a man who wrote that out of a love for Paul. Now, he obviously did not make Paul out to be a handsome Hollywood-type movie star. A lot of people think that it's a fairly accurate uh, description of Paul. It comes out of Iconium. And it comes out of supposedly somebody who was in Iconium who knew Paul on this missionary journey. So, just for your interest there. The apostle Luke writes to us that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, that's Paul and Barnabas together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed. Now you ask, why is Paul going back into the synagogue? I thought he dusted his feet off and said, we're taking the gospel to the Gentiles. What's he doing back in a synagogue if he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles? Well, Paul didn't give up evangelizing Jews just because he was rejected by Jews in Pisidian Antioch. He continues his pattern of taking the gospel to the Jew first, and then to the Greek, and so he goes right into the synagogue that's in Iconium, and there he and Barnabas preach a message that was probably much not much like, if not identical, to the message that we've looked at in Acts chapter 13, and Luke says a large number of people believed. Now that would be refreshing after the opposition that they've just experienced, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be refreshing after having suffered in Pisidian Antioch, 
having been blasphemed, having been cursed, having all of these people say these things about us, and so many people not believing, that you could dust your feet off, walk into a city, and a large number of people would believe. That would be encouraging for Paul and Barnabas. There apparently was a large number of people in Iconium who had been appointed to eternal life, and they believed. They came to Christ. That's good news. But, verse 2 begins, always a but. Don't you wish we could just get through one city with the Apostle Paul without reading about a but? But there is some bad news, verse 2. The Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Do you notice a pattern developing in the book of Acts? Paul goes into a city. He goes into a synagogue. He preaches the gospel. Some people believe, but the Jews, the Jews stirred up the minds of the people in the city and embittered the Greeks, embittered people who may have been ambivalent against the brethren. So these people begin to stir up opposition, not toward Paul and Barnabas per se, but just toward the brethren, the church at large. The church gets a reputation. And all it needs is for a couple people to level an insinuendo or an innuendo or an insinuation. Insinuendo, how do you like that one? That's a good word. New one. Insinuendo. A couple people to level an insinuendo against a people and they will have their minds poisoned. It only takes a little bit of poison to poison a well. And all you have to do is make a suggestion. All you have to do is just say something slight. Raise an issue, raise a potential objection, say something about somebody, and the minds of everybody else was embittered. They were poisoned against the church. So that those who believed now in Iconium, they have fallen into disfavor with all of the Jews in the synagogue and with the people in the city. Now you know why the Jews opposed Paul? We saw this back in Acts chapter 13. It had to do with the idea that their Messiah could be cursed and hung on a tree. They couldn't accept that. Jewish Messiah, our Messiah, dying under a curse, on a cross, Roman cross, killed. Come on. They couldn't accept that. It's a stumbling block, Paul says. The gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. They trip over it. Why? They cannot get over the idea that their Messiah should die on a cross. Furthermore, they could not get over the idea that their Messiah should die on the cross and then offer to those dirty, unclean Gentiles salvation by grace through faith. Furthermore, they could not get over the idea that their Messiah should die on a cross and offer to Gentile salvation apart from the law, which is what Paul is preaching. You can be freed and justified from all things that you could not be justified from under the law of Moses. Apart from the law on the basis of faith alone in a Messiah who was crucified, you can have salvation. The Jews couldn't get over that. They couldn't deal with it. And so rather than just saying, no thanks Paul, we'll pass and go home, they actually display their disobedience by embittering people against the Christians. They're not content to just disbelieve, but they're actually intent upon destroying those who would believe. So Luke says to us in verse 2, the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Notice the word disbelieved there. It's translated disbelieved in the context because that's really how Luke is using it, but it is a word that is translated everywhere else in the New Testament that it is used as disobeyed or did not obey. Do you understand that not believing the gospel is actually disobedience? You and I think that the gospel is this invitation that we give to people that they can accept or reject without consequence. I'll accept it. I'll reject it. 
that the gospel is not an invitation. The gospel is not an invitation to be accepted. The gospel is a command to be obeyed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you'll be saved. That's not an invitation, that's a command. We don't give invitations. We tell men what the command of God is. God has declared for all men everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. So the command of God is for men to repent and to place their faith in Christ. And to say, no, thank you, is actually to be disobedient to the command of God, which is the gospel. And the New Testament presents the gospel in terms of something that you and I not accept or reject, like an invitation, but something which we obey or disobey. John 3.36, He who believes, listen to that, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you see how obedience and belief go hand in hand? You see how disobedience and disbelief go hand in hand? They're the same thing. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8 says that Christ will return and He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is in the gospel that needs obedience? Repent and believe. And if you won't do that, you will be judged because of your disobedience to the command of God, which is to repent and place your faith in Christ for salvation. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, the time for judgment to begin with the house of God has come. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? So it's disobedience. Luke says that those who were disobedient, who disbelieved the gospel, well, they embittered the minds of believers against the apostles. Look at verse 3. Therefore, They spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Since the brethren now were in the hot seat and they are receiving these uh, accusations and innuendos and insinuations and all of the blaspheme that normally Paul and Barnabas reserved for themselves, now that the brethren are in that boat, the apostle Paul and Barnabas are not just going to move on to the next city and leave these people for the wolves. Paul and Barnabas are going to stay there for a long time. And they begin to speak out boldly in the name of the Lord. Now it's important for you and I to understand what boldness is. Paul and Barnabas speak out with boldness in the name of the Lord. And they do that in the midst of opposition. In the, in the face of heat, you and I would expect nothing from Paul other than boldness. And he's bold. He writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, After we had already suffered at Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. When the opposition heated up, Paul and Barnabas got bolder. Now what is boldness and how do I get boldness? Boldness is an essential quality for Christians. Friends, you and I cannot accomplish anything of significance or anything of value for the Lord unless we are bold. You know why that is? Because the first hint of opposition, you'll cave. If you're not bold, then the first time the enemy strikes, you give in. The first time you're offered a sin, you compromise. You back down and you cower into fear. And so the enemy knows that if you're not bold, the only thing he needs to do is level an accusation, come charging, bare his teeth, and you'll cower back, shrink away into insignificance, And just quiet down and not say anything for the Lord because you don't want to offend somebody. You know what boldness is not? It's probably better to illustrate what boldness is by describing what boldness is not. Boldness is not brashness. It's not being obnoxious. 
It's not having an attitude. It's not having a spirit that just that just speaks your mind without thinking. It's not being curt. It's not being able to shout other people down in an argument. Just because you can give to somebody a piece of your mind that you cannot afford to be without does not mean that you're bold. That's not boldness. What is boldness? Boldness is the ability to, with a straightforward manner, a loving attitude, with gentleness and respect, to speak the truth in love and to say it as it is. And then to knock back down. And if somebody comes at you with opposition, then you simply reaffirm the truth and you speak the truth in love. It's not being obnoxious. It's not shouting people down. It's a straightforward, concise, uncompromising, loving presentation of the truth. That's boldness. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. Standing in the gap for these believers who are being opposed and assaulted by unbelievers from every quadrant, Paul and Barnabas stand there and they speak out with boldness, with a straightforward, knowledgeable, articulate, uncompromising, truthful, loving, compassionate presentation of the gospel. That's boldness. It is taking every opportunity that the Lord gives you to glorify Him. It is not being ashamed that you are a believer but trusting in the power of the gospel to save the sinner and presenting it with straightforwardness and accuracy and love. That's boldness. How do you get boldness? Boldness is the product of prayer. Boldness is the product of prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, after the apostles are released, they gather together and they pray. And Luke says in Acts 4.31 that when they had prayed... The place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. It came because of their prayer. They were praying, men and women. You cannot speak much for God until you have spoken much with God. You want boldness? Be a person of prayer. But second, boldness is not only the product of prayer, it is also the product of being filled with the Spirit. When the place was shaken, they were filled with the Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Being filled with the Spirit is to be yielded to, controlled by, submitted to, walking in and with the Spirit of God. Not grieving the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit, but to have the Word of God governing your life and being yielded to the power and the influence of the Spirit of God and you've got a bold man or woman. It's the product of prayer. It is the product of being yielded to the Spirit of God and filled with the Spirit of God. And listen, friends, our natural tendency is to be cowardly. Our natural tendency is to be in fear of other people. What they think, or what they can do to us, or, God forbid, what they might say to us around the water cooler for being a Christian. Do you know that the Apostle Paul asked others to pray for him? And he asked them to pray for him that he would have boldness? Ephesians chapter 6 With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. In chains, in prison, the Apostle Paul says, pray for me. Not pray that I might be released. Pray that I might have boldness to speak as I ought to speak. That in the opening of my mouth, I may speak the truth with love 
straightforward and with clarity. It is the product of prayer. It is the product of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's the product of somebody, it's the evidence in the life of somebody who loves the truth and is committed to the truth and loves the Word of God. Boldness comes from knowing the truth. If you don't know the truth, you won't be bold. If you don't have the truth, you won't be bold. Because somebody may try and pigeonhole you into a corner and to shut you up. But friends, there comes that point when your stomach burns and your bones are on fire and you must speak because you know the truth and you love the truth and you cannot allow error and falsehood to win the day. And so you must speak the truth with boldness because it's like a fire inside of you. But that only happens with somebody who loves the Word and is submitted to the Word. You show me somebody who doesn't pray, doesn't love the Word, and thus is not yielded to the Spirit of God, and I'll show you somebody who is a coward when it comes to spiritual things. But you show me a man or a woman who loves the truth and is submitted to the truth, and thus yielded to the Spirit of God, and who is in prayer much with God, and I'll show you somebody who's bold for the sake of the Gospel. They spoke out with boldness. Now verse 3 is a verse that I I want you to become intimately familiar with, and if you're going to memorize a verse this weekend, memorize this verse, Acts chapter 14, verse 3. The Lord, they were speaking out boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by His hands. Now why is that verse important? For this reason. You and I might ask ourselves, what is the purpose of miracles and what is the purpose of signs in the New Testament? Here is a verse that crystallizes it and puts it all into one nice, neat little package. Verse 3. The Lord was testifying to the word of His grace by granting that signs and wonders be done by the hands of the apostles Paul and Barnabas. By their hands. Now, I'm going to preach a message on the subject of miracles when we're all done with the last miracle in the book of Acts. But that's all the way in chapter 28. So let me just point out two little items of truth that you need to see in verse 3 before we leave it. First of all, notice that the Lord grant would testify into the word of His grace by granting that signs and wonders take place by their hands. Notice the connection with the apostles. If you can remember two words that both start with the letter A, you'll have a handle on signs and wonders in the New Testament. The first, apostles. And the second, authenticate. Apostles and authenticate. Notice that Luke does not say miracles were happening. doesn't say that. He doesn't say the miraculous was going on. He doesn't say everybody was doing miracles. Luke is very, very careful in the words he uses. The Lord was bearing witness with them by granting that signs and wonders be done by everybody? No, by who? Paul and Barnabas. With rare exception in the New Testament. I would actually say with no exception. Miracles were done by the hands of the apostles. And those closely related to the apostolic ministry like Barnabas and like Philip. He was granting that miracles and signs and wonders take place by their hands. Listen, the early church was not a miracle-working church. The early church was a church that had miracle-working apostles. And there is a world of difference between those two things. The early church was not a miracle-working church. The early church had miracle-working apostles. It says by their hands, Paul and Barnabas. Not by everybody's hands. It wasn't a day and age in which you had people on the street corners lengthening legs and doing these sideshow presentations and healing backs and healing stomach ailments and looking into the TV camera and saying, I know there's somebody out there with a bad back. I heal you in Jesus' name. 
Not that kind of stuff at all. The early church was not a miracle-working church. The early church had miracle-working apostles. What was the purpose of the signs? Look at verse 3. Luke tells you, testifying to the word of His grace. That's the gospel. It served to authenticate the messenger and the message. Why did God grant signs and wonders at the hands of Paul and Barnabas? Because he was testifying to the word of His grace. That was their seal of authenticity. How did somebody know if Paul and Barnabas spoke for the Lord? They could perform signs. They could do wonders. Paul had the ability to work miracles. And God granted that ability in order that he might testify to their gospel and point out that their gospel is authentic. In the book of Galatians, which by the way was written to the Christians in Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and Pisidian Antioch, those four cities, the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul asked the question of the Galatians, did he who worked miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the Spirit? In other words, the Apostle Paul pointed to his gospel and said, my gospel is the true gospel. It is the right gospel. It is the only gospel. How do you know that? Because I performed miracles among you. Did I do it by the works of the law or was it by the power of the Spirit? In other words, he pointed to the miracles and said, they authenticate my gospel. And now you've turned and you've accepted a gospel of works with circumcision and law-keeping. Paul pointed to the miracles that he had done among them. And he said, they bear witness to the truthfulness of my message. The miracles that I did. They authenticate. They were done by the apostles and those very closely associated with the apostles' ministry. And they serve to authenticate the message and the messenger. Hebrews chapter 2 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, that is Jesus... And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard God testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. The author of Hebrews says this salvation was spoken by the Lord, and then it was confirmed by the Lord through the apostles, those who heard Him, by signs and wonders. They served to authenticate the message and the messenger. In Iconium, Paul came into the synagogue and he preached the gospel. How did they know if that was true or not? How did they know? Did they have the New Testament? By this time, there was maybe one gospel that had been written, and it wasn't widely circulated. Not even Paul had written a letter yet. He doesn't write Galatians, which is his first letter, until after this missionary journey. Did they have a New Testament? How did they know that what Paul said was true? God granted him the ability to perform signs and wonders that authenticated him as a messenger of God and said, What he says is true. Listen to him. Today, how do you and I know if somebody speaks for God or not and is telling us the truth? Do I need a sign? I don't need a sign. Why don't I need a sign? I have something they never had. I have the entire New Testament revelation, Matthew through Revelation, and I can look at this and I can tell you whether or not a man speaks for God or not. I can test every spirit by what has been revealed. They didn't have that luxury then. The signs and wonders served to authenticate the message and the messenger so that they could say, he does speak for God. See, even the Jews understand that. And they said of Jesus, no man can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. They knew he has the ability to do this. He speaks for God. We better listen. So what did it serve to do? Did everybody become a believer when they saw all the signs that Paul and Barnabas were doing? No, they didn't. Look at verse 4. Not only did the gospel create opposition for those who believed, it also created opposition for those who preached. 
But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. People did what people normally do. just comes naturally. They pick a side. In any church conflict, in any social conflict, anything where there's two opinions that disagree, what's the first thing you want to know when you hear about a disagreement? What are the two sides? Why do you want to know that? Because you want to pick one. And you want to get on it. And champion it. That comes naturally to us. The people in the city did the same thing. Some sided with the Jews. Some sided with the apostles. And so the apostles, maybe even some who didn't believe sided with the apostles, and said, just give them some time. Leave them alone. However it is, they get quite a following. And if you don't like the message, what do you do? Uh, you try and kill the messenger. Right? Particularly if the messenger is starting to get a following, and that disturbs you. So look at verse 5. And when the attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled. An attempt is made by both the Jews and the Greeks. Now listen, the Jews hated the Gentiles. They hated the Greeks. They wouldn't touch anything that was touched by a Gentile. They wouldn't eat food that was cooked by a Gentile. They wouldn't go into a Gentile home. They wouldn't sleep in a Gentile bed. They wouldn't eat meat that had been cut by a Gentile. They wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. But these Jews link arms with Gentiles because they share a common goal. That's kill Paul and Barnabas. So I may not eat your food, but I'll participate with you in murder, which is what they do. And an attempt is made. Horme is the Greek word. And it literally means a rush. The word attempt means a rush. And it speaks of this impulsive, rash, sudden, jumping onto something. It's the word that's used to describe a a mob attacking Paul's companions in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. They rush in with just this rage, and it was probably a mob scene that unfolded, and this attempt is made to stone Paul and Barnabas, and so they flee. And they go to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, Derbe, and out into the surrounding regions, and they continue to preach the word. Now what did the persecution do? Does persecution serve to stop the preaching of the word? or to spread the preaching of the Word. All the way through the book of Acts, we see the same thing. Whenever the church is persecuted, the church grows. Whenever the church undergoes suffering, it gets better. Whenever somebody tries to squash the preaching of the Word, it just mushrooms out and goes all over the place. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. Paul learned this lesson early on. You remember, he tried persecuting the church. And what happened? (laughs) He was the one that drove the Gospel outside of Jerusalem. He tried to persecute the church and the gospel went to Samaria, went to Ethiopia, went to Cyprus, went to Antioch, went to Tarsus, went all over the place because of the persecution of Paul. And here he's doing the same thing. Now he's on the receiving end of the persecution and so he flees. Now just a second, Jim. You just said that Paul was bold. What's he doing fleeing? Good question, isn't it? Why does he leave? I thought he was bold. And now he's running from persecution? Friends, his fleeing is not cowardice, it's prudence. It's not cowardice, it's prudence. With boldness he spoke out in the name of God, on behalf of the Gospel, and there came a time he stayed there as long as he could, there came a time when his very life was threatened, and so he left. Matthew 10.23, Jesus said, they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. That's what Paul does. He just simply goes to the next city. He has stayed there as long as is prudently possible, And Paul is no fool. He understands he can't be of any use for the Lord if he's dead. It's not cowardice. It's an act of wisdom. He simply says in an act of self-preservation, 
I'm going to move on. You lock your doors at night? Why do you do that? Because you're a coward? No, because you're not an idiot. That's why you lock your doors at night. I lock my doors at night, not because I'm a coward, but because I'm not an idiot. I don't want somebody walking in in the middle of the night. He said, Jim, of all the people in the world, I thought that you would trust in the sovereignty of God to protect you. Friends, I do trust. I trust that God is going to sovereignly use my locks to protect me. And so I lock my door. It's the same thing with Paul. There comes a point when he says it just is not wise to stay here anymore. It's not that he is a coward and he moves on. And he goes to the next city. They say, he escaped a stoning. Got away from it. Close. That's good news. Not quite. There are three bizarre things that happened to the Apostle Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14. This is the first of them. This attempt to stone him. There's two more, and we'll look at the second one next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom and the guidance that it imparts. And we pray, Father, that you would give to us the boldness to speak out boldly in the name of Christ, not to have the offense that of the Christian, but of the cross, and not to offend people with the tactics, but to simply stand for the truth. We ask that you would do that, and that you would give us the grace and the opportunity this week, to, with reliance upon you, to speak out boldly in the name of the truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.